0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the writer A.M. Holmes, whose new book is The Unfolding, which is a novel that starts with the election of Obama, but that seems to have an awful lot to say to the present moment. A.M., what was the sort of genesis of this book? Because it does feel quite contemporary, but it it started a while ago and, and became prophetic, if you like, didn't it?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, quite a while ago, I was thinking a lot about, obviously, history, American history and our sort of political evolution. And I was talking to my editor about what I was going to write next. And I said, you know, I feel like there's something happening where the political establishment has lost track of the American voter. And there's all this dark money flowing into politics. And then Cambridge Analytica is happening and all of this stuff. And the editor actually said to me, "But you don't write science fiction." I said, "I know, but I just have this weird, weird feeling about things," and uh, I sort of was bummed out by the editor's res- initial response. And then after Trump got elected, they called me back and were like, "How's that book coming along?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, you know, it's it's happening."
0: But the premise for it, for those who of the readers who haven't heard it, and I hope it's not giving too much away. Is its protagonist, the big guy, is a sort of very. I guess you'd say traditional sort of, you know, millionaire, multimillionaire, you know, very waspy, white, kind of middle-aged, Republican donor type guy. And he's turned up to the McCain victory party, which turns out not to be a victory party. And the kicking off the plot of the book is that he resolves to do something about what happened, to rescue America, if you like. Can you Explain how that, how that plays out and where that kind of came from.
1: Sure. There's several different answers to that. So on the one hand, I would say I've often used what I would almost describe as the least likely characters to sort of unpack an idea or a problem. And I would say in some ways, having this older, wealthy, white Republican as one of the main characters to unpack ideas about really racism and sexism in America he is a very unlikely character. I think in some ways, I feel that the old school Republicans did have the sense even before the Obama election, but certainly that cemented it, that they were losing control of the party. I think when we had the events of a previous election, when we thought Al Gore had won, we all went to sleep thinking Al Gore was going to be our next president. We woke up and George Bush was the president. And there was a I joke that it's a person, but there was what they called a hanging chad in Florida. You know, I think that that also and the fact that the Republicans were still able to reclaim that election and put Bush into the White House was the beginning of them demonstrating their power. And I think what happened now, you know, is more fascinating, which is really the desire to change the narrative and to change the narrative now from one that was always fact based to one that is now. Literally fiction, in the sense of the stories that the Republicans spin about having you know, won an election that they didn't win and all this stuff. I don't think I'm answering your question correctly, but that definitely for me was part of the the thread. And I guess more specifically, I felt that that Obama's first election, which was a time of for many of us, incredible joy and optimism and hope certainly for me and for many people I know, I bought a new TV for Obama's election. I went from my little college 13-inch TV to a bigger one. And I, I live in New York City. And, you know, we literally poured out into the streets to celebrate. But I wanted to sort of inhabit the other side of that story. And I realized that there were probably a lot of people who were shocked to realize that a black man was about to become president of the United States. And to them that was really proof that things had changed in such a way that was truly terrifying, that they were losing control of their vision of America and their vision of democracy.
0: Now, I mean, one of the things that's quite peculiar about it is that we, at the moment, conspiracy theories, if you like, on the American right talk about the deep state. But this is a sort of slightly nightmarish idea of a deep state in the other direction, a deep state of the right, which is these kind of Mayflower descendants. Right. Who are, you know, see themselves as the keepers of the flame and they're, you know, going to come together because he gets other people in, doesn't he? It's kind of a conspiracy thriller, or at least
1: in its premise. Absolutely. In some sense, it is. Do you think there is such a deep state? Well, I think it's a good question. I think the question is is it a deep state or are there deep states? And by that, I mean there absolutely are all kinds of plans and things that run through the government. So, literally, when, when, Eisenhower was president. He tapped 10 men, and it was called the Eisenhower 10, totally secret. No one knew about it until many, many years later, decades later. And their job was, in case of nuclear war, they were supposed to assume responsibility for different parts of the American, not even just government, but like one person was in charge of agriculture. One person was in charge of the banks. One person was in charge of different things. And all Eisenhower did was write letters giving them that authority. So there's there's all kinds of... <laughs> deep threads that do run through the government. And as someone who I grew up in Washington DC and I remember as a kid thinking this place is weird. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there were things like warplanes parked in trees behind, you know, where we would go playing and stuff. I mean, it was the 1960s. There was a lot of political obviously, you know, Vietnam war and racial unrest, but it was only when I left DC as a teenager just to go to summer camp that I realized, oh, no, Washington runs the whole country because it seemed so dysfunctional even then that I was shocked that that little town could run the entire United States. So, you know, are there deep states? Sort of. I mean, I also think there is a different kind of deep state, which really is the influx of enormous amounts of, of money that really started probably in the late 1970s, certainly into the 80s, into the 2000s, that, you know, theoretically, innocently, was think tanks and places that people, when they left their jobs, you know, in the government, would go and work for. But that also is another word for propaganda machines, really, right? And places that can start to spin their own stories. So that piece has grown exponentially, and I think is very active at this point.
0: And did you come across, I mean, I, a lot of the strangeness and surrealism of your imagination, I wonder whether that came out of, as you say, Washington, Washington you grew up in being so strange. I mean, people always thought J.G. Ballard had mined his dreams, but it was Ballard had just mined you know, his childhood in Shanghai. Right. Did you come across these people like the big guy? Did you come across this stuff?
1: I'm not sure exactly that I came across this stuff. But on the other hand, I would say absolutely yes. So as a kid, one of the jobs I had, because I also grew up in a very a complicated family, and I was adopted into the family to replace a child who died, which is a whole other weird story, but it has its own sort of surrealistic aspects. One of the things I used to do as a kid was I worked on political events. So I worked on, you know, marches on Washington, and somehow my job, even as a teenager, was to be in charge of security, which is very much about my own catastrophic thinking and planning. And we would have to meet with the U.S. Capitol Police, the U.S. Park Police, and the D.C. Police, because they all had jurisdiction over parts of downtown Washington. And they would say, you know, you walk in you'd say, I think 300,000 people are going to show up on Saturday for this march. And they would say, okay, well, you can have this what we call snow fence, which is basically little sticks that are woven together with wire. That's the kind of fence you're allowed to use. So you can put that up, to mark off areas. And you can give us a list of 10 people who could use the bathroom in the Capitol. So I'd write down on the piece of paper, Jerry Brown, you know, governor of California, Jane Fonda, actress, Joni Mitchell, singer. And then I'd put my name, you know, exactly. So there was always this strange, both absurdity and surrealism in Washington. And yes, I'm sure, I mean, to me, this is my Washington book, even though it's much of it is set actually in different parts of the United States.
0: I mean, something that from our discussion so far might not have been clear is that this book is kind of screamingly funny. You're obviously, you know, you're in a kind of parodic, jokey, you know, you're you're enjoying the absurdity of it. I mean, and his co-conspirators you put together, this fabulously kind of bizarre crew. Do you think of it as a comic novel more than a political novel? Or is it, can it be both?
1: I think for me, it's both. And I think it's interesting. I think about Angela Carter was my writing teacher when I was in graduate school. It was the one time she came to the United States and taught. And she wrote this wonderful essay. It's going to sound like a digression, but it was about the social uses of pornography. And I think there are also social and political uses of humor. And that in many ways by being funny, I'm actually able to cut deeper into both the American psyche and into this weird undercurrent of true darkness, I think. And so for me, it's important to be able to make people laugh in order to make them think seriously about things. I would say, especially in this book, I wanted the big guy and his cohort, the Forever Men, to be pushed to the sort of extreme absurd in some ways. I thought a lot about the film Dr. Strangelove. I thought a lot about what was actually happening as I was writing it. And I thought, I don't want to write in reaction to that. So I wanted them to be a little bit more strange and pushed out than that. So yes, I mean, the answer is yes. It, it is absolutely supposed to be funny and dead serious. So funny, not funny.
0: And <laughs> uh, Did you, I mean, you said, obviously, things were unfolding in the real world as you wrote it. And uh, Did you feel, I mean, in some ways, the political direction that the, the reaction on the right to Obama's election and what played out has gone in a slightly different direction, I and mean, the people who are now in charge of the party are not, you know, traditional, moneyed, waspy, coastal aristocrats. Trumpism is is built on a different sort of coalition, isn't it? I mean, do you feel that's that's where your novel diverges from reality, or is this part of the same preacher?
1: I think the thing that's interesting is that the novel, you know, covers from Obama's election to Obama's inauguration in two thousand eight, and obviously, right now we're in twenty twenty two and we've come off of one Trump presidency and we're looking at the prospect of him running again, I think if the forever men were to look at Trump, they would ask, did we do this? And that would be a question of had their program, as they would describe it, in some ways worked to create chaos, to create disruption, to create discord. And the answer for them would be, we wouldn't know if we did it because their plan was set about to make their actions untraceable. And so once the whole thing is set spinning, they are in some ways no longer, quote, responsible. So that's one kind of answer. On the other hand, I also think it's fascinating that, yes, as you said, Trumpism and Trumpers are very unlike traditional old moneyed white Republicans. At the same time, somehow, and this is the part I, to be truthful, don't totally understand, they have the support now of the Republican, for lack of a word, elderly establishment, such as Mitch McConnell and other people who you would think would would run screaming from them or would try to reclaim that. So that's the part that I find truly, truly disturbing and I don't think in some ways fully anticipated.
0: Yeah. Now, in literary terms, you've mentioned Angela Carter as an influence. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong in this, but it feels to me like there's a flavour of Don DeLillo in some of the dialogue, in the kind of, in a way, in the preoccupations of this. Is DeLillo someone who who you look to?
1: I love Don DeLillo. I love Don DeLillo so deeply and so enormously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting, too, for me about DeLillo and a little bit Philip Roth and a few other writers, and even Stephen King in his book that he wrote about the Kennedy assassination, all of those writers, but DeLillo especially, allowed me to and taught me how to weave history and fiction in a way that both allows for the full use of my imagination but also incredible true factual detail and I love him, I mean, I just think he's brilliant
0: that that question of weaving in history, I know that in your earlier novels, weird enough, we spoke twenty years ago you you were very keen on research. you did a huge amount of research for i mean the end of Alice and so forth yeah do you? kind of set yourself a rule when you're doing this, this sort of book to say, I can't depart from, you know, where I'm putting, if you like, historical facts in, they have to be bang on, or do you give yourself some wiggle room?
1: I would say I try not to give myself wiggle room, because I feel like if I'm using something, especially these days, that is a fact or something true, I try for for that to occupy that space in the book. It may be open to somebody misinterpreting the fact or the truth, but I don't bend those things, um, which doesn't mean I might not make a mistake. But there were things even like the big guy and his daughter, Megan, are both very interested in George Washington and obsessed by George Washington. So, of course, I always do research. But the one thing I didn't know, and I discovered was that George Washington was originally a British soldier. George Washington was a disgruntled British employee, and he was upset because he was being paid less as a British soldier in Virginia than the guys who were coming over from England. So he changed sides. And I thought, wow, I never knew that. I'm embarrassed to say I had no idea. So I discovered a lot. But the other thing I will tell you, too, is that in writing this book, and there's a ton of of history in it and a ton of detail, everything from the algorithms that data uses to, you know, point us in the right direction to kinds of candy that were manufactured in Chicago. And there's a character, Metzger, who's really modeled on William Burroughs. But it was actually Jeanette Winterson who said to me, stick with the characters, stick with the human and the people in this book, because it is so much about history and politics, and you don't want to lose that human thread. And I I took that advice very seriously. Yeah. Well, that that human thread, I mean, you
0: know, from the way we've been talking about it, you'd think it was just about this big guy and his conspiracy. But it's a novel with two strands. And the other strand is his daughter, Megan, who you've just mentioned. Can you tell me how when she entered into the story? I don't know how you conceived it. I mean, did you conceive it whole or did you realize mm-hmm. this needs more than just this big guy and let's let's give him a daughter?
1: Sure. So conceiving the book, Megan and uh, the big guy's wife, Charlotte, were there all along. And I I wanted there to be this weave of story that worked on two levels. One, in America, women aren't supposed to write the great American novel or sort of what I call the pretty good big book. Women are supposed to write small domestic interior stories. And so I wanted there to be this weave of the big American book, i.e. the political, the men, so on, and also to be this much more intimate domestic narrative. But the other thing that was equally important to me was as much as the big guy and his cohort who were older and had seen a lot of things and so on had their point of view, I wanted there to be someone who was coming to this for the first time. So Megan votes for the first time in 2008 and has a kind of both political and personal awakening, kind of coming to consciousness as she's watching her family react to McCain losing, which other people see as Obama winning. And realizes that she, in fact, may see the world somewhat differently, and that was really, really important to me, and I think in some ways, not to be too you know symbolic, but Megan it could be a symbol of hope, a symbol of a future that is not yet claimed, and so that was very important to me
0: and the big guy's relationship with megan i mean he he does come to talk about i am the nuclear research program, and she's the bomb or something what's the what's the phrase he uses because it seems to kind of knit them together that way:
1: Sure. There's a moment where Megan and her father are having a very nice day. I think they're at the zoo or somewhere, you know, trying to sort of have some nostalgic moments of her childhood. And she asks him, is there anything that you wish that you'd done differently, you know, or invented or something else rather than just being this you know, big money guy? And he actually says he wishes he'd invented the atom bomb which to me in the, again in that dark humor is hysterically funny because the idea that somebody would think that's what I wish I'd done I wish I'd invented this incredible killer device you know and then later the big guy talks about how he is the inventor and she is the bomb because he comes to believe that she will be his legacy she will carry on his vision and part of that is still his distortion of not seeing her becoming her own person there's also a piece that I really am interested in where he begins to realize that he might not be a pretty good person. He really begins to think or see that he might be kind of a jerk. And to me, that was also really important to realize that the impact he had on the women in his life was not entirely positive. And so th- it becomes a, a sort of a reconciliation within himself of like, how do I live with myself and how do I adapt to understanding who I really am? So again, possibility of change for difficult characters.
0: I'm mean, I'm curious as to how I mean it's 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 not necessarily a question that has an answer but you know as a writer how much do you sympathise with the big guy I mean did you find yourself thinking yourself into his point of view and seeing the world through his eyes in a way that that satisfied you that maybe he wasn't a
1: complete jerk it's interesting I talk a lot. With people about the question of likability, which to me is a very, it's not the same as sympathizing, but it's a very modern idea that we're always like, oh, I have to like these characters. And inevitably, even when I give my books to my early, early readers, they go, am I supposed to like this person? And I think, I don't care. I'm not interested in whether you like them. I am interested in human behavior. And I'm fascinated by what compels people to do what they do and what it means to them. So do I sympathize with this guy? I actually really do. I feel compassion for him. I am astounded at his sort of tone deafness at times, his sort of blindness, whether it's willful or generational. I think there is an incredible power to the kind of privilege that some people don't even realize they have. Megan talks about even when he goes to vote, how he assumes everybody there is happy to see him. And he sort of, you know, walks around as though he's practically the candidate So yes, I totally do feel compassion, but that's my nature. I am very probably compassionate in ways that I think others might not be, but that's okay. I don't think you have to like a character to find a book interesting. And importantly for me, always, I want my work to be a source of conversation and discussion and debate as much as I want people's approval. And I do, I don't write thinking I need people to say, I love your book. I'd rather have them say, you know, I don't want them to struggle with it on a literary or creative level, but I want them to struggle with the ideas in it.
0: You've said in the past that you, you find men more interesting to write than women. Is that something that still holds? I mean, do you find the big guy
1: more fascinating
0: than Megan, for instance?
1: I think if it still holds, and I'm not sure it does, I think it might be more equal these days, I think it's because they are, to me, in some ways, other And I have my own experience, you know, as a woman and sort of living in that world of women and so on. But I also feel like there's definitely a piece of me that appreciates, in some ways, the very things about men that drive many women crazy. And I remember my teacher, Grace Paley, who was an incredible feminist what I also learned from her and loved from her was she adored men, and yet she was still an incredible feminist. It didn't it didn't make her not like them. And I think in many ways, I used to be less of a feminist than I am now, but I also very much adore men, even though they can be kind of clueless sometimes. Hmm. Now,
0: in the book, you give one of the characters an experience or a version of the experience you had yourself of being... Adopted, and if you're like, replacing a child who died, what was your interest in doing that? Why did you? I mean, it's it's an experience you've written about in nonfiction, in The Mistress's Daughter. What what made you want to return to it and put it into your fiction?
1: In some ways, Megan's experience is similar to mine in that yes, she is adopted into a family and replaces a child who died as an infant. In other ways, it's very different because I grew up knowing I was adopted. So Megan, it for her, it becomes a sort of a family secret and a reveal. And I guess in some ways I wanted to explore it in relation to identity and in relation to a kind of empowerment that both Megan and Charlotte feel once the secret is sort of revealed. And also they're keeping the secret in support of the big guy. He is the one who's always wanted that secret to be kept. And so that was also interesting to me in terms of the family's evolution and, and sort of, you know, it's called the unfolding for many reasons, but their own sort of coming undone. And as a way of coming undone, they also come to greater truths about themselves and about how they want to exist as a family and move forward. So in many ways, it seems to sort of parallel my own story, but it's also very different. But I think that the ideas and the experience of that are certainly something that I've, in many ways, not fully explored in fiction. And so I was interested in, you know, getting into that a little bit more.
0: You know when you did write about your own experience, the mistress's daughter, you had before that been seen quite widely, i think as a as a very sort of private writer and somebody whose you know work stood apart from your personal life. It seemed like quite a dramatic breaching of that dam. Is that how it felt at the time? Was it yeah. a kind of watershed for you in terms of being personal?
1: I think it's complicated because in some ways, yes, it was very, very personal in other ways. The odd thing was that whole story of being found by my biological parents and its impact on me represents a slice of my life, almost like a pathological piece of my experience. And yet, as I've gotten older and I'm a parent now, I realize, too, how much growing up feeling truly illegitimate and feeling like I don't have a right to be here— has affected who I am and actually how I move through the world and how I see the world. I feel in, if the big guy is is privileged and empowered, my own experience is almost the exact opposite.
0: The memoir was quite an angry book, if I'm characterizing it correctly. I mean, among other things, your first contact with your birth mother was, I think she was approached you to try and get money from you. Has writing that out and now treating it in fiction, kind of process the experience. Do you
1: feel less angry and more mellow now you're a a mother and so forth, and more grounded in the world? It's funny, I never thought of it as an angry book, (laughs) nor has anyone ever mentioned that before. I mean, I think in some ways it is slightly confrontational in the ways in which there, there are things in the memoir that are sort of confronting my biological father about sort of his handling of the whole situation there is a sort of a fictional deposition of him and his handle of things that I can understand that someone might see as as angry. I don't think that writing the memoir particularly helped me process it. I think what was interesting was to realize that the skills that I have as a writer that I'd been working on for years, I brought to writing that. And that book seemed to have a lot of power and meaning to other people who had some experience with adoption, with illegitimacy, with all those kinds of things. I also thought actually that Jeanette's book, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, was actually similar, although I like hers better than mine. So I don't think it necessarily helped me process things, but I will tell you something that's, I'm revealing a big secret now in in my private self. As I was writing the new book, which in some ways you could say the big guy is a little bit like my biological father, My story is a little bit like Megan's story. Little emotional threads of that are true. And then as I was writing the book and pretty much done, out of the blue, a biological relative contacted me and said, you know, we're related and do you want more of the family story? And I always say, yes, of course, I'd like to hear more. And this relative said, do you know that the ancestors that we come from, besides the fact that they were among the very first people from England to arrive in the state of Maryland, they owned an enormous amount of property. And I said, I, I'd heard something about that, but I never really had any documentation. I didn't really know that. And then she said, they owned the land that is Capitol Hill. I said, what? <laughs> she said, they owned the land that is where Capitol Hill is. And I said, oh. And then she said, they loaned all of the land. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I actually then went and did some digging. And my ancestors in 1638- owned all of the land that is where Capitol Hill is now. And he was a co-owner of the land and then sold it in 1640, You know, which is so long before Washington was built and so on. I thought, wow, there is something about that and the sort of the almost biological drive to understand oneself that is part of who I am and that is part of this novel that I didn't even know. And I thought that to me is a giant Wow. And I have not particularly talked about that yet, but I'm a little- because I am still processing that, and I think it's pretty wild that is
0: extraordinary, and the personal and the political all neatly neatly wrapped up and so weird <laughs> you know yes yeah. and so weird but you 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 know as a writer you you do seem to have these strange synchronies <laughs> and coincidences between your work and the world, I think not least wasn't it? your short story about Nancy and Ronald that in his declining years that it turned out was truer to life than you'd known.
1: Yeah, there's that. And there's the fact that Music for Torching, which ends in a school shooting, was published the day of the Columbine shooting, which was, you know, yes, I'm like a human antenna. It's not always pleasant.
0: (laughs) In conceiving this book, did you, because obviously it starts out, you kind of, as a reader, there's a bit of you that's going, this is going to be, a conspiracy thriller, but you're very, you know, you stop it at the inauguration. You don't follow through with what they do next. Was there part of you that wanted to?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. So in a way I wanted to go all the way through and up to, you know, 2024 and 2026, and we have a a sesquicentennial coming up in 2026. And part of it was things, as I like to say, here on earth and in reality had already gotten so weird that I thought, okay, this is getting freaky. And and all of the things that I was writing about were happening. And then also the book was already four hundred and some pages, you know, long. So I thought I better stop here. But I do have more material. <laughs> I do have more and I have more for Megan. And I, I think the question for me is gonna be, am I gonna do something with that? And I don't really know. But I felt that I told the story both of the the sort of the political idea that that people were going to try to sort of right the wrongs that they felt were happening definitely if not conspiracy theory was also happening and also importantly i felt that the family story had gone through enough of a sort of a journey or cycle that i could stop where i stopped
0: yeah well maybe we'll see a sequel a. M. holmes thank you very much for your time